Welcome to the HC Insider Podcast, a podcast dedicated to the commodities sector and the people within it. I'm your host, Paul Chapman. Today's episode is a recording from a panel of the Reuters Events Commodity Trading USA event in Houston in June. The discussion was around the rise of alternative capital to finance the commodities sector. As the commodity sector faces spiraling financing demand in the wake of high prices and volatility, traditional financiers have stepped back. Who's going to fill that void? And what does it mean for the industry? The panellists are Lewis Hart, Managing Director at Brown Brothers Harriman, Ethan Shoemaker, Investment Partner and Head of InfraCredit at Orion Infrastructure Capital, and Prashant Muparapu, who leads investments in energy and infrastructure for Citadel. As always, if you enjoy the show, please do leave us a positive review on the platform you're listening on. It really supports the show, and I hope you enjoy the episode. Thank you for joining us. We're talking about the rise of alternative capital in the commodities sector after a period of uh, investment capital not flowing into the commodities markets through to prior low returns, ESG concerns, and now volatility. What does that mean for the commodities sector, and where can alternative sources of finance come from? Um, just to, well, I'd invite my guests, the panelists, to introduce themselves first, and then we can dig in. Thank you, Paul, and pleasure to be here. Uh, I'm Lewis Hart. I've uh, been at Brown Brothers 17 years. I oversee our commodities and logistics and corporate banking divisions. And Brown Brothers has been in the commodities business in some form or fashion for over 200 years, dating back to 1818. Hey, guys. Ethan Shoemaker. I work for Orion Infrastructure Capital. I oversee our uh, infrastructure credit business. Orion's a private equity fund focused on middle market infrastructure investment, doing both credit primarily as well as some structured equity uh, throughout North America. Hi, guys. This is uh, Prashant Muparapu. I look after uh, principal investments for Cyril Commodities. Cyril is a multi-strat hedge fund. Uh, within that, we have a large uh, commodities business. And um, you know, apart from physical and financial trading, uh, we also look at, uh, as we will speak, uh, speak about in more detail, um, private investments in some select situations. Thank you. Um, as you can see, we have the entire capital structure covered. Um, I'll invite questions towards the end, but I guess before we go too far, Lewis, can you help diagnose for us why there is that funding gap in the commodity sector today? Sure. Um, happy to answer, Paul. I, I think it's interesting if you sort of take a historical perspective on it and look back maybe five or ten years, uh, maybe even a little farther. If you start with the great financial crisis in 2008, um, the reaction to that from a regulatory perspective was essentially uh, more pressure on bank capital. Um, so prior to 2008, I think you had more banks willing to lend into the space. And after 2008, the industry was re-regulated. You had Dodd-Frank. And the result of that was essentially banks having to hold more capital against the same assets. Um, if you sort of fast forward to 2014-15, when we had significant energy price volatility, um, that also, I would say, put a lot of pressure on the returns in the business. Um, so after sort of the super cycle leading up to 2008, 
<clears throat> you suddenly had um, an environment where commodity prices were very soft, and particularly for banks focused on commodity finance, the working capital side of the ledger, uh, that meant that usage was down and profits and earnings of those group were down. And then, um, needless to say, if we look at the environment we're in today coming out of COVID, combined with uh, the geopolitical situation in Eastern Europe, um, you suddenly have an environment where demand for capital is way up. That's a function of the price of the commodity, also a function of slowing cash conversion cycles, which is uh, a direct result of the supply chain shocks we're seeing. Uh, and then last but not least, um, you have a huge, um, after a demand shock from COVID, you now have a supply shock from the Russia-Ukraine Ukraine situation, the sanctions, and essentially the re uh, routing of global supplies of a lot of different commodities. Uh, so, so when you look at all that together, we have a situation where demand for capital in this sector um, is extremely high and supply of it has really retreated into the background. Hence, um, folks like those to my, to my right who see an opportunity to come in and replace traditional forms of capital. Thanks for that, Lewis. Just one question before we move on to, to Prashant and, and Ethan. Have we seen a concentration in the number of banks that are offering these? I mean, what does that sort of structural landscape look like? Yeah, and, and there are many in the crowd who could probably speak to this, but if you go back two decades, I think there were, in the US as an example, over a dozen banks that had full commodity finance departments, meaning front office dealing with the clients, middle office, monitoring the collateral and the flows of cash, back office with cash management, that number has just gradually shrunk and shrunk as time has gone on over my career. And today, we're lucky if it's five, six, seven, maybe in the US. Um, that's partially a result of consolidation, just as the financial industry has consolidated, <clears throat> the number of participants has declined, but more recently, with some of the losses we've seen, particularly in Asia in 2018, we've seen larger, particularly European lenders that were huge in this sector <coughs> step away. Yeah, thanks. Um, Prashant, uh, could you give us a hand? Because obviously the last, the 2010s were also defined by private equity coming into particularly the energy space. The shale revolution was, they were critical in that. You saw yep. a lot of um, private equity groups investing heavily. Can you just give us the last decade of their run in this? Because it's in, it's in, in about uh, 10 minutes or five Yeah, minutes. <laughs> yeah a couple. Uh, well, I think maybe we could take midstream as an example. Maybe it would be easier to just pick one sector and diagnose the problem uh, or, or, or the situation. If you look at what happened over the past 10 plus years in midstream, midstream energy was used to be what used to be called the downstream OFS type of business. Incredible amounts of private capital came into the midstream sector and it essentially became what was known as a core plus infrastructure play. Valuation multiples increased along with that leverage increased, especially with private credit that's available. And so that kept on feeding the engine of valuations. And as valuations kept rising, more and more investors wanted to participate in that valuation expansion, and you saw more capital coming in. Um, but the under, underpinning of all of that was obviously the shale revolution, but also contract structures, right? You created saying before 
you would have take or pay account tracks, and then you had this concept of MVCs, minimum volume commitments, and then you had acreage dedications. And sort of within all of that was forgotten the fact that there are actually volumetric risks associated with this business. And while there is a secular boom, people forget about these sort of inherent risks in these contractual structures. And so if you think about what's happened now, those contractual risks have actually come to bear. People have said, okay, acreage dedication is not the same as an MVC, and you've seen the impact of that on some of these uh, midstream assets. The second thing that's happened is you always had the public markets as your exit. And MLPs, for a long time, were that. With the low interest rate environment, the MLPs just didn't have the ability to raise public capital, at least for a while. Uh, and so you don't have the natural exit. The answer for a long time was large private equity companies became larger and essentially owned companies that should have been public, but they're private. So they were tall grass, for example, were buying a bunch of prep midstream. I know I'm concentrating on one sector, but it sort of shows you the playbook of what's happened in sort of a lot of other energy and energy-related uh, sectors. But in the, the, maybe the question you're asking is, like, why, is, why is it not happening now? Like, you see the big boom in energy, why is it not happening now? Um, maybe one, it could be time, uh, but the other could be also there's always a lag effect between commodities and supply demand, fundamental supply demand in a commodity sector showing that there is scarcity and the assets actually following and the investments actually following beyond that. Mm. And then overlaid on that, you have obviously the what I call the, the musical chairs where funds are changing the sectors that they want to focus on. And so you have this commodity price inflation that should drive asset creation and hence should attract capital, but most of the capital that is focused on it has moved on to look at other sort of sectors, whether it is you know renewables or renewable natural gas, et cetera. Um, hopefully I'm answering your yeah, question. Yeah, that, that captured it perfectly. I mean, talking about that sort of musical chairs, I mean, a big part of this is energy transition. There's, um, you know, you, there are pressure from stakeholders, whether it's for banks or public companies, or whatever it might be, to, um, to make sure that its dollars are going towards sustainable projects. And also, there's the challenge about the uncertainty of that transition, how it's going to play out, which technologies are going to win. Ethan, can you talk to us about kind of how energy transition is playing into this, you know, financing not necessarily following like we would expect right. in this kind of rise of prices? Yeah, I think the, the two themes that, that both Prashant and Lewis have highlighted is this sort of high level of volatility and discombobulation that's making traditional capital sources not act the way we thought. And there's structural reasons for that. There's market reasons for that. And then take that landscape. I also think traditional capital markets are not great at these fast, violent changes, which is what we're seeing now in some of these commodity markets. That's a tough, a tough thing to, to react quickly to, I think, for some of those, whether it's trade finance or, or bank finance. And then when you take that sort of discombobulated, highly volatile, high velocity of change market and you overlay energy transition drivers, positive, negative, pressures, others, it's also contributing to this capital not flowing the way you might expect in such a high price environment to, we'll call it more traditional markets. Part of that is stakeholder pressure that you mentioned. Um, at least in the private fund world, there's a higher level of focus 
from limited partners, but from GPs as well on ESG compliance, broadly defined, as well as really just the fact that energy transition fully realized is a very high multiple of CapEx and investment need relative to even the peak years of shale. And so it's both the kind of stakeholder pressures, some of the macro and micro volatility, as well as just, I think, a view that, you know, this window of sort of multi-trillion dollar infrastructure needed to achieve decarbonization goals or energy transition goals is an opportunity worth pursuing. So when you shake all that up, tough for traditional lenders to sort of find that stability to lend against traditional energy products and also some energy transition. And sort of it's giving rise to, I think, other forms of alternative capital seeking to fill, to fill that void. I, I just want to touch on what Ethan said. One of the things that's interesting is on, on, on the leading edge of energy transition, some of the valuations we are seeing for development companies of the new asset classes is the momentum of that is far greater than what I've ever seen in my, my career. Right. Um, and so, but when you look at the underlying cash flows of these assets and what people are betting, they're taking a ton of market risk or merchant risk. Um, and or, be reg or regulatory risk. All regulatory risk, yeah. which is in some in commodities, it's the same thing, right? right. <laughs> so um, it would be interesting to see um, how that all pans out. Uh, and on the other hand, other side of the energy transition or the conventional space it is the same, much lower level of merchant risk is not welcome or not entertained. Right. Which is kind of an interesting um, view, at least where we sit, we see that completely sort of disconnected, right? The mm -hmm. amount of risk, if I really don't care about which side of the ESG I'm on, and if I just look at sort of risk-adjusted returns, I see a big disconnect right now. Yeah. yeah. Um, <clears throat> so you kind of got this twin track of, okay, Capital going into assets, into technology, into you know, tackling essentially the supply issues that the, the commodity markets faces. Um, the other one is we've got this short-term, potentially short-term, potentially long-term volatility in the markets that is creating its own sense, set of problems for financiers and for the traders themselves. We're moving from <clears throat> you know, margin, we talked about margin calls this morning and liquidity challenges. Maybe, Lewis, you can just take that on for us as well in this diagnosis of the challenge? Yeah, so, so the way I would sum it up is on the conventional side, you almost have too many opportunities and too little capital chasing those opportunities. On the energy transition materials and renewable side, you have probably too much capital chasing too few opportunities. And so we're way out of balance, right, in terms of where capital is flowing. Paul, the volatility just in the commodity price is exacerbating this issue, right? Um, so if we look at, um, just take a trader, for example, a commodity trader who's moving oil, um, a barrel of oil, hypothetically, from point A to point B around the world. In April 2020, they needed $20 of working capital, right, to move that, roughly. Today, they need six times that, right, seven times that. Banks are not set up to really react to those violent moves where, Prashant, as you said earlier, there's a step change in the price very quickly. So where we used to see a 1% to 3% move in a market as a pretty extreme move or a large move, today we're sort of immune to 5%, 10% moves you know, every day. 
And banks think in terms of dollars, not in terms of volume. So if I'm going to commit this much capital for this flow and suddenly X becomes 6X, banks just can't react to that, right? They just can't get their arms around the fact that the risk is the same, um, the product is moving the same way, the cost of shipping has gone up, the cost of the commodity has gone up, it takes 30 days longer to get there because it gets stuck at the port. It's just very hard for a bank in a regulated environment to increase the capital they're committing to this industry that quickly and by that um, large amount. So the result of that is either traders have to go find more expensive capital from non-traditional sources, or as one of our credit committee members likes to say, this is why God invented equity. That, you know, <laughs> A lot of um, traders like debt, and sometimes equity is actually the right solution. Um, so what it means is returns have to go up, right? Returns for the capital providers have to go up. That means the cost of capital um, for the borrower or capital user is likely to go up. And the return um, of the person taking that risk and dealing with that volatility should also go up uh, commensurately. So we had, you know, going back to my original point, you had this period where returns were just terrible in the space for about five or six years. And now suddenly the returns, you know, are really improving and capital is very, very gradually, you know, coming back to some point of equilibrium, but we're still, still way out of balance. Yeah, and, and I mean, that is a vicious circle in some senses, right? Because the, actually the, the, the profits aren't going up necessarily, it's just simply the volumes and the, the capital required. I mean, are you seeing banks, new banks or, or old banks returning to the space to, to fill that gap? Or is this a, I mean, we can only expect, there is an argument, as we've heard today, that volatility could t continue to go up and prices could continue yeah, to go up. Yeah, the, the sort of vicious cycle is if you can't get capital, you have to, trade smaller positions, right? So you can't run as large of a book because you need the money to finance your position. You need the money in reserve in case margin calls come in. Margin requirements are up because of that volatility. Um, and so essentially the amount of volume traded, you know, your only option if you can't get capital is to reduce the amount of volume you're traded, which in turn, to your point, uh, actually exacerbates liquidity because suddenly there's just less bid, less ask in the market. That spread widens, and that actually creates you know opportunity for those who are are well funded. So it's it's a it's a very interesting I, th I would say opportunity filled environment, but the risk is substantial. And if you're the CFO of a company uh, in the trading business today, how do you forecast how much money you need? It's very hard to do. Uh, how do you get your lender or your junior capital provider to be on call when you need money because oil's gone up 10 or 15% in a day because of a geopolitical development over which you have no control. Um, so we're seeing this mismatch between you know, committed dollars and fixed volumes start to really impact particularly smaller companies that don't have access to the range of capital providers that the large companies do. There's an interesting kind of butterfly effect follow-on to that, which is in an asset finance world where people would typically get financing by transferring some of that market risk to a trader or to yeah. a strategic with a trading, um, that is becoming a more expensive hedge to go get. 
and that's flowing through the returns of projects that are looking to finance, which ironically means some projects are just not economic, which exacerbates some of those supply demand things. So there's other layers to this that are sort of all interwoven, even though you might think of trading world and asset world as, as separate. If you can't get a hedge to do that next CapEx program because the capital requirements are too high or the price doesn't make it work, it, it's actually filtering into asset world in a way that I probably wouldn't have anticipated, but we're seeing that across yeah. all parts of it. I was exactly, I was going to say exactly that. I mean, it's at the end of a, a, a fixed price transaction or a hedge is yeah. a transferring of market risk into a credit risk, which then becomes a funding risk, right? That's all it is. You, you can't risk, make risk go away. You're just allocating it. Um, so one would expect uh, the, you know, if it doesn't solve itself, uh, is new contract structures have to come into right. place or people have to think of l different tenors for these contract structures mm. to make it work uh, and or... You need to put in more equity. The HC Insider podcast is brought to you by HC Group, a retained search, intelligence and advisory firm focused solely on the global energy and commodity sector. With six locations across Asia, Europe and the Americas and over 50 consultants. To find out more, go to our website, hcgroup.global. There, you can also sign up for our HC Insider content for more interviews and white papers on relevant trends and talent impacts in the commodities world. Alongside the banks effectively concentrating, you've also had a concentration in the number of participants in the market as well. And if you're facing this, this need for scale, assume that's going to impact, well, the number of participants and therefore, you know, increase volatility potentially as well. Is that a fair comment, Lewis? Yeah, I, I think so. I, I think there's very much a haves and haves nots in the trading community right now. We're likely one of the few capital providers on the debt side that still uh, enjoys banking companies, you know, with pretty small balance sheets. Um, I would say most of our friendly competitors, you know, have moved up market considerably from us. So for the first time in my career of almost 20 years, I'm bringing traditional um, banks in, but I can't find them for a lot of our deals. So we have to bring in trade finance funds or hedge funds or credit funds that maybe understand that we know how to underwrite this business, but we have our own limits and we don't have an infinite balance sheet either. So we're having to clamor to find liquidity providers from areas we never thought we would have um, you know, five or ten years ago. Which I guess brings us nicely to, I think we've diagnosed the challenges that the sector faces pretty sub substantially. What do, I, I guess the, the title of this panel is The Rise of Alternative Capital. Prashant, maybe you can give us some sense of what we mean by alternative and the, the other potential solution gotcha. providers out there. Well, we can tease on the conversation we were just having, right? So, so if, if contract structures have to change in, a, in an environment where prices are high and volatility is high, uh, one solution is finding capital or quasi-equity capital that is willing to take that risk. And so I think the way I think about what we do is we are looking at the, all the assets in the energy and the commodity world and looking at fundamental asset values. And the fundamental asset values, we are able to do that because we have beside us a, a large, sophisticated physical and financial trading platform that looks at the macro and micro um, supply and demand in each of these sectors. 
So when we look at an asset and we look at the fundamental asset value and we see there's a disconnect between what we think is the value and where the market is pricing it, uh, we think there's an opportunity. And now that, that could happen because of a couple of different reasons. One could be just an external shock, uh, some sort of a weather event, geopolitical, et cetera. Uh, and in some, in some cases, it could be you know, a new revenue source that's linked to you know, um, a regulatory compliance credit. It could be carbon, it could be LCFS, it could be RINs, et cetera, where there isn't enough, a liquid enough a market out there for somebody to go actually transact. Or the cost of locking in those cash flows is so expensive, going back to the previous discussion, you wouldn't do it. And so one way to fix that, the reason people used to get long-term contracts is to get leverage. If, the le- if getting that leverage is ma- making the contract so expensive, one way is to replace that debt with another kind of capital, which is willing to take that market risk. In simple words, that's what we try to do. Uh, I think what the assets we are looking at are saying, is this a fundamental, fundamental asset value disconnect? And is that a merchant risk that we are willing to take? Um, and once we sort of formed a conviction that is that, that, that arbitrage exists, the form of our investment can take any shape. It could be equity, it could be some hybrid debt, it could be some form of commodity-linked finance, uh, all of the above. And so uh, taking sort of renewable natural gas for an example, you know, we are looking at structures where renewable natural gas, for those of you who are not familiar, is, is basically takes some form of waste and you know, creates natural gas, which is, has got renewable attributes, and hence it's got some additional revenue streams about the brown gas value, call it RINs, call it CLCFS, et cetera, which, you, which in, in most cases you cannot really hedge too far. Um, and so one of the things that we're thinking about and looking at uh, is doing transactions where we are being the off-taker, but prepaying on the entire off-take. So we're effectively solving two problems in one. We are essentially taking the market risk, but at the same time providing capital to the project. So that's mm. just one example of, um, of a solution that we're providing. Yeah. But the funny part of that is what we are seeing valuations of these hold co-companies is... Is, is driven by the amount of capital that wants to play in this space. And so while we like the fundamental asset value disconnect at the asset level, we don't find it at the, op, you know, at the holding company level. So we are really looking at our investments at the asset level. So that's one example uh, of that. And the other, you know, we've all talked, I think Louis put it perfectly, there's lots of opportunities in the conventional energy side and not enough capital. Uh, we are definitely aware of the financing gap and and trying to find ways to play in that yeah. uh, space as well. And I want to come back to that point because whether that's a sustained aversion to the conventional space, we'll see when energy, energy security comes to the forefront. But as I understand what you're saying there is, of course, you do have the benefit of having a commodity trading platform that can warehouse those risks and price them. And, and actually, over the last decade, you've seen fewer and fewer organizations to have that capability. There's been a consolidation. Also, as, as Lewis was saying, you know, now they're much more cash conscious, to, to be put it in the layman's terms. Um, you know, is, is that, a, is that a, an alternative source of financing to the commodity sector that's available at scale, or is that just 
it's, it's great for Citadel to have and a few others, but well, not really uh, a systemic solution. If you don't mind uh, being one of few, uh, but uh, I, I think that there's, going back to my musical chairs theory, let's see what's happening in oil and gas, right? Um, there's a retrenchment of RBL lenders. Now, they're coming back, right? Banks are coming back, but definitely not to the scale. I don't think they'll ever come back to the scale that they used to. Uh, but at the same time, we all know um, every well in the U.S. is more profitable than it ever was um, and will be for, for a period of time. And so there's some fundamentally good assets that are definitely required to fill the gap between supply and demand, uh, and those need financing. And so, um, so, so there, you know, we are seeing other alternative capital come come to play. Uh, the other piece, I'm, I'm sure, you know, we have we've been across a couple of asset-backed securities. So essentially, what used to be bank lender, bank uh, debt financed companies are now being financed through fixed income markets, capital markets, which was never the case. If you look back three years ago, didn't exist. And so that's a whole new market that is now slowly becoming larger and larger. And so I think over time, I would think once there is a good asset and a good cash flow that can be financed, I maybe the the previous capital providers maybe are moved on, uh, but you know I think there'll be another source of it, and we're already seeing that happen. Thanks, Ethan. Yeah, I think there's elements of of Prashant's strategy that apply to us. I think our version of that sort of special sauce would be a lot of these, particularly project finance like things, take a long time to put together, and so what we found is that we don't have the balance sheet or the capital to maybe warehouse all of that market risk internally. But over the course of a project development, we can work with the developer to do the offtake to a strategic, bring in a trading capital. And we can be that sort of underwriting anchor to help put those financing building blocks together to put together an investment that otherwise wouldn't, including laying off the risk at a good price to Citadel maybe. But um, so that's sort of our business model, which I think is applicable in the middle market, which is why we focus there because it tends to be developers, owners, operators that um, maybe need a little bit of that, that structure as well as the capital. Um, so, so a version of that, trying to find those gaps or those risks that don't match perfectly with what I'll call the 4 to 5% project finance bank playbook and, and, and trying to find those pockets of opportunity. And the, I, I just want to weave back in energy transition there as well. You know, because I get that on the conventional side, these are assets that are probably easier, to, obviously easier to to price, and the risks are more known. Like, you know, where do you think alternative capital comes into financing the energy transition, and, and how challenging is that, given that you've been involved in that? It's it's pretty hard. I think um, you have to contrast what I'll call the mature energy transition asset classes: utility scale solar, uh, wind, because those have relatively robust mature markets, they're becoming more challenging with cost inflation, power prices still being relatively modest. But um, I think where we found the most challenges, but also the most opportunity is in renewable fuels, other areas where the markets are nascent, the hedge markets might also be nascent. There's an element of regulatory market operational execution scaling risk that makes it not quite yet ready for traditional capital market participants, banks, or otherwise. Um, so 
but it's, it's really hard. There's a lot of ch capital chasing those opportunities. They are evolving. Um, and there's good reasons why traditional lenders are not yet, uh, haven't yet screwed up the markets there yet uh, by, by lowering the cost of capital. But um, so it's really hard. And I think people think of energy transition as a sort of monolithic single thing when really you've got all these splinter subsectors that are all very nuanced and, and hard. Renewable diesel versus biodiesel, RNG from dairy versus RNG from uh, landfills. You've got all service value chain that services those. And so, again, I think people think of it as traditional and transition, but really it's a splinter of all these different things. And I wouldn't even touch on recycling or offshore wind, and they each have their own sort of idiosyncratic risks that make them interesting but really hard to, to figure out. I think Ethan will agree on this, is one of the big difference between, if you look at how utility scale solar and wind have grown and how the new age, I'm just gonna call it new age, um, ESG assets are growing, those assets were initially project financed and then people then said, hey, if you actually pull all these projects together, there is enterprise value to be created. So enterprise value creation came after project finance and project equity returns. What I'm seeing now is exactly the reverse. This enterprise value creation of battery developers, renewable fuels developers and, and uh, companies before the project returns have actually been completely vetted or come to fruition. It, it's not right or wrong. Uh, I think it's driven by the scale of the capital that is trying to play in the energy transition space which needs to make those big bets. They need to make those big company bets, not a project. And there's so few projects. So few projects. So it's, it's going to be interesting to see how that all unravels, right? Because you're, you have you know, storage development companies going public at yeah. $2 billion, um, and we don't even have a revenue model for storage proven in a multi-year basis. Yeah. It may all pan out. And then I guess look, there is a question, and I will come to the question shortly, but one of them is what source of capital do you think is driving, drive, the driving force behind energy transition? And you mentioned earlier there was this kind of dichotomy between traditional you know, lack of financing, but the, the, this, on the energy transition side, you see, yeah, you see these incredible valuations. And you know, can you just talk to that? Where do you think that, that capital is coming from? Is it from all the traditional sources? And what's driving that? Lewis. It's a sorry. Yeah, go ahead, yeah I, I can kick it off. It's I, I agree 100% with this kind of dichotomy concept where you have these sort of very well dressed up bow around them projects with perfect offtakes, with a spread locked in for 15 years, with an investment grade supplier and an investment grade customer. That's like easy to do. That's mature. I think the cost of capital continues to fall on those, and I think you'll continue to see traditional banks race at those projects. I think you'll see less and less equity requirements um, in order to build those. I think on the more sort of entrepreneurial side that these guys were harping on, I think there's still real problems in um, bringing that to scale. Um, if you think about the risks you take with a renewable diesel project, um, there's really no logical correlation between the price of animal fat, which may be your raw material, and the price of renewable diesel. And so you're kind of, maybe you can get some sort of hedge, and Ethan would probably figure out how to do that um, over a long period of time. But in general, um, that's a kind of a scary risk for most traditional uh, sources of capital. 
And so, you know, you're kind of betting not only that the merchant dynamics of that project will remain intact while your capital's out, which could be 10 years plus, uh, you're also betting that these significant government subsidies are going to continue to kind of make the project economic, even if the kind of fundamental economics X government subsidy start to break down. And so I don't, I think that's still going to require deep pocketed strategics, you know, to make those bets that have um, some sort of ability where they're either naturally long or short, either the raw material or the output, and they're willing to just sort of build that into their supply chains. Yep. I think it's less likely that you're going to see traditional capital chasing those projects maybe five to 10 years down the road. It'll start to standardize, but I don't think we're anywhere close to it. Um, and so, you know, I go back to the earlier statement that there's, for those, that more entrepreneurial segment of the energy transition, um, X some of these very fashionable areas like you know battery storage, for example, I think it's still going to take longer to build the capacity than uh, the market is currently pricing in. Yeah. And then I guess that's um, two final questions. One would be the market is certainly, and this has been since COVID, right? There's been even a sea change in just in the, in the community as well as in financiers about ESG and, and energy transition. <clears throat> the last few months have diff- shown us the importance of energy security and much more close to the home, whereas like at the gas pump, <clears throat> do you see a, a sort of leveling off and a, a return of traditional capital to the, the hydrocarbon space for want of better of a description? Whoever uh, wants to take that on. Prashant? Sure. I mean, I think sort of partly addressed that, I think at least um, talked about it uh, before. At least what's happening now um, is there is capital coming back, different sorts of capital, different sources of capital. Uh, And what I mean by that is, for example, the traditional private equity upstream model is obviously reduced significantly or maybe not even, maybe one could, I'll dare say, absent today. Uh, There are people like us who are definitely funding or funding the gap, if you will, there. Uh, But definitely the, the, the amount and the source of this capital is definitely not going to be similar to what existed through the private equity upstream space. Mm. It's just different magnitude. Uh, Second, the leverage that was the traditional leverage, uh, the RBL traditional leverage definitely has went away and has come back a little bit, but definitely retrenched from older levels. But you're definitely seeing ABS, private credit, come in. Um, And I would say in the past three months, I've heard of at least two funds trying to build a private credit ENP strategy. So it's a matter of time, I think, where economics are compelling, uh, energy security is important. Um, it's irrespective of the longer-term ESG goals, I think the today opportunity exists. And my guess is there will be new capital coming in and we're already seeing it. But the the important point of that, though, uh, I don't know if I'm able to convey that, but the kinds of businesses and assets that new capital will finance will be different than what was financed the past 10 years, right? Mm. Um, the private equity model was more about management teams and going and finding the right assets. And I think all the new capital that's here now is about asset-specific 
supported by the right management rather than the other way around. Yeah. Uh, one final question. So coming back full circle, we did talk about the challenge of volatility and liquidity. We've had almost this sort of shift from credit risk to liquidity risk. Primarily, I mean, lots of contracts are now just fully on the exchanges. I mean, to you, Lewis, is there a systemic risk in the system in the sense that the alternative sources of capital can't really meet that need, especially in the rapidity at which it's needed? I mean, how, how sort of at a yeah. dangerous point are we if we continue to see increased volatility prices just in the next few months as you know, war in Ukraine continues, et cetera? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. And I would say the, the funding model of commodity business is, is quite tenuous. Um, if you think, you know, for example, the trading houses, in a way, you know, if you think about the capital structures, they're essentially renting money from European banks, which in turn are funded by European depositors. And then they're taking that money and reallocating it to purchase commodities around the world and ship them around the world. So that kind of that kind of works while banks are committed to the space, but if banks are exiting oil at the very time when demand for oil, for example, or prices of oil are rising, that creates you know a huge a huge issue. Um, and so I, th I I do fear that there's some risk there. I think there is an effort to diversify funding sources, right? That's sort of the natural um, next step if you're the CFO of a company that is dealing with nine-figure margin calls, you know, on a daily basis. Um, and I think it's, it's yet to be seen where that capital will come from. I think it's likely to come from different sources. Prashant mentioned capital markets. You know, you're seeing more working capital come in through asset-backed securitization structures, for example. Um, I think you'll see more kind of inventory repo type products evolve that are distributed more widely, not just to specialist uh, commodity banks. But I do fear that that funding model probably, you know, had seen its heyday. And going forward, um, some combination of capital markets, family offices, private equity, you know, all the sources of capital we name together will essentially fill that gap. The issue I, that concerns me is the funding needs for a, you know, a barrel of oil, for example, just to use that example, no one has any idea what that funding need is going to be in six months. We can all sit here and look at standard deviations and try to figure out what a four standard deviation move would be, a five standard deviation move, but the environment we're in where there's not a lot of new supply there's geopolitical risk and demand is steady to growing around the world. You could see, you know, some pretty violent moves. I, w I would think, and that could put a lot of pressure on um, on companies that are exposed to those margin calls. So they either have to <clears throat> shrink their book or find new capital. And if they shrink their book, that creates that volatility. I've heard it referred to as a doom loop um, that that we all fear. Um, but, you know, not to be too pessimistic, I do think that capital is coming in. I just think the returns on offer are going to have to increase um, for that capital to come in um, from folks like um, the alternative, you know, investors to my right. And the alternative is that those trading houses have to raise equity. Yes. And, and, and another way of saying that is the, the, the warehousing of risk, of working capital risk function that the trading houses play 
you can you can earn a one percent margin if you're ten to one levered and you turn your assets eight times a year. That's actually a good return on equity. Um, but if you're ten to one levered and you need to go to fifteen to one in order to to stay hedged and keep essentially transfer your market risk to liquidity risk, and the liquidity risk is too much, <clears throat> then you need to start thinking about returns on a less levered or an unlevered basis. And right now, I don't think anyone's thinking that way. Everyone is thinking about, I only have to put a dollar of capital in, I can borrow $8 from the bank, and I'm going to make a 20 30% return when it all shakes out at the end of the year. Um, that unlevered return needs to go up. Equity needs to play more of a role. And um, that's going to, you know, that's going to change, I think, the capital structure of these types of businesses. Thank you. Thank you. I'll, I'll move on to a couple of questions. I have the prerogative of picking, picking which, but uh, one that springs out is could blockchain or similar technologies democratize access to capital and, and sources thereof? This increased, you know, potential situation of increased transparency, et cetera, in the market. Do you see any role for, are you, are you, are you all looking at blockchain solutions? Um, should I? Okay. Um, I, c I can't say I'm, I'm an expert at any stretch of imagination. A few years ago, spent some time looking at how blockchain could uh, help with supply chain finance, which obviously is an area of financing that uh, has seen uh, <laughs> some trouble, some trouble in the past. Uh, but the struggle with the blockchain, irrespective of whether the technology is, you know, has all the attributes that we all know about, is it still relies on an entire supply chain that provides that independent validation and verification, right? And so we're talking about antiquated ports, train, trains, et cetera, that have to now provide real-time information to it. The so I guess, simply put, the concept is phenomenal. It should work. Uh, the amount of infrastructure that needs to play into it to actually sort of, it, for it to fulfill the full-blown effect of uh, blockchain, I think, is tremendous. And it's, it'll require a lot of capital, uh, political... Um, institutional and money. It's a heavy lift. It's a heavy lift. Um, <clears throat> maybe to you, Ethan, uh, are we seeing family offices uh, enter the space, and if so, how significantly? Um, I would say, the, in obviously, in private equity world, they've always been a significant LP. Um, we're also seeing more active direct investing programs from family offices. Lewis can probably speak to whether they're popping up in the direct commodity trade finance, but certainly seeing them active in asset finance, particularly as family office balance sheets have done really well over the last kind of 24, 24 months. I don't know if you're seeing them in. Yeah, no, I, I think it's, a, it's actually a very interesting target market in terms of finding capital for commodity trading firms. The duration of family offices tends to be much longer than traditional private equity, um, sort of perpetual capital versus five to 10 year capital. <clears throat> Those types of businesses, to my earlier point, really need that stable funding base so they can attract leverage and fund their operations as well as have the money in reserve for margin. So I do think, I am seeing family offices much more active, more on the junior capital side um, of commodity finance. I think the Again, to the earlier point, on the debt side of commodity finance, it's very tricky um, to not know how much money your client may need day to day. And so there's always this large unfunded component, which is one of the reasons 
that the returns, you know, started to suffer after Basel because you essentially would write a check for a dollar and like a credit card, you don't know if the client was going to use 50 cents, 40 cents, 60 cents. And whatever was not drawn, you're holding that capital against and not generating much return on it. <clears throat> so it's very hard for a family office to give someone a, essentially a blank checkbook's too strong of a word, but here is up to this amount of money and you can draw it. They're going to charge to keep that capital in reserve. And so it's not capital efficient, typically, for family offices to come in on the debt side. Thank you. Uh, final question. I, I don't know who wants to take this, but with the rise of tax equity partnerships as a form of renewable infra investment, how do you see the future of these partnerships and other similar structures? Anyone? Ta so tax equity, you said? Yeah, tax equity. Um, I don't know if, uh, I mean, we obviously have tax equity playing alongside equity in renewable projects for a long time, PTC, ITC, et cetera. Uh, I guess the big next, next big tax equity thing is uh, CCS, carbon capture and sequestration. Uh, even those have been done. Uh, there's obviously the, the uh, promise of ITC and direct pay, which obviously would make the tax equity investment in these carbon sequestration projects much more easier and more lucrative. Uh, I don't know if there's a specific sort of point to it. I think it's sort of a well-worn model of project finance with tax equity with both PTC and ITC. So Yeah. Well, um, thank you very much. I want to thank our panelists, Lewis Hart, Ethan Shoemaker, and Prashant Muparapu, um, for a very interesting panel. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and want to support the show, please give us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. To find out more about HC Insider and HC Group, a search and advisory firm dedicated to the commodity markets, visit our website at www.hcgroup.global. There you can find out more about our services and our offices around the world. There you can also find more content from interviews to insight pieces to more podcasts focused on the commodity value chains. Thanks again for listening.